and welcome to Start Right Here, a podcast where we discuss breaking in, standing out, and the path to success in the beauty industry. I'm your host, Corinne Corbett, and I hope the conversations I have with my guests inspire you to forge a path of your own. Let's get started. I am really excited about today's guest. You already know I say I'm really excited every episode because I have such amazing guests. And today it's no different. I'm happy to welcome Marty Moore, who is a buyer turned marketer focused in beauty retail. And now she's an entrepreneur. And we're going to hear about her beauty journey and the ways in which she has utilized her talents at every stage of her career. So welcome, Marty. Thanks so much, Corinne, for having me. Great. Can you give us your 30-second bio? Sure. I actually have my Bachelor of Fine Arts degree and started my career in retail because, as my mom said, I had to get a job where I could make some money because I couldn't eat paint because, you know, I wanted to be a painter and you know how that goes. So I started my career with Macy's. And I was on the training squad and I became a department manager. And from there, I became an assistant buyer and then worked my way through buying. Um, My first buying position was the Lancome buyer. And I bought Lancome as well as Fashion Fair and Flory Roberts and Elizabeth Arden and several other brands. But my focus was really Lancome. And I did that at Macy's for about, I want to say, three or four years. And then I was recruited to Pittsburgh to work for what is now Walgreens. And that was a culture shock. Uh, That lasted maybe nine months. And a woman that I worked with at Macy's had moved to Boston and recruited me to Boston. I gave her a call and I said, you know, I thought this was going to work in Pittsburgh, but this is really not for me. So she said, no worries, come to Boston. So I went to Boston and I worked for Filene's for a number of years. There I was a Lancome buyer and I was a fragrance buyer. And then I needed to move back to New York. I called my friends at Macy's and said, I've got to come back to New York. They said, no worries, we have a position for you. So I went back to New York. There at Macy's, my second tenure, I was a fragrance buyer. And that's really when I developed a love for fragrances. After that, Lord and Taylor called me and said, we've got a great job for you. It was my old boss, Barbara Zinn Moore, who moved to Lord and Taylor. And she called and said, I've got a great position for you. It's a VP of marketing and store presentation and events for beauty. And you would be our liaison between the marketing organization and the buying organization. So really a marketer and a person who looked at sales promotion from a store point of view. I was also responsible for how product was merchandised in the store. So I was truly a liaison between marketing and visual merchandising and the merchants. So I did that for a number of years. And then Macy's called me and said, we have a great position that we think you'd be perfect for in marketing. So that's really when I made my transition from buying and being a part of a merchant team into a full marketing position and a marketer. And it was a position for marketing for beauty. And I struggled with whether to take it or not. And I thought, you know what? Macy's is a huge national retailer. And so I took the leap. I went back to Macy's for the third time and was there for 
a number of years and through all the transitions and reorganizations. Last year, 2019, in February, they offered packages. They were reorganizing again. And I had been waiting, actually, for a package. They had offered packages two years prior, and my name never came up. And I was like, shoot. (laughs) So finally, when they offered me the package, I jumped. I said, yes, absolutely, because I knew that there were other things that I wanted to do with the package and left, never looked back, decided I was going to do my own thing within retail and beauty. And so that's where I am. Okay. There's a lot that we're going to unpack because one of the things that you've done successfully is create a lasting relationships with people you've worked with, which I think we can learn a lot about. And you've gone back to jobs, not to the same job, but to the same place more than once. Yes. There's some things that we can learn from that. Was the beauty industry a destination or a detour? Because you're really like entrenched in beauty throughout your career. I would like to say it's partially a detour, partially a destination because I am an artist. I love art. I'm a painter. I paint now. I have paintings on my website. So that is my love. So I guess you could say beauty was a detour. However, with that said, One could also say it's a destination because through art, there's beauty or through beauty, there is art. So I guess I would say it's a destination. In the final analysis, it would be a destination. I worked at Macy's while I went to Pratt. I was a fashion merchandising major and I don't think I wanted to be a buyer after I was like the freshman or sophomore year because I worked at Macy's on 34th Street. My whole college. Anyway. You know the war zone. (laughs) Yeah, I know the war zone. (laughs) Tell me about being an artist and being in that training program and being a department manager. What was that transition like? Because that was, in all intents and purposes, your first job. It was about learning to manage people and how to effectively get people to do what you want them to do. It was about learning how to communicate effectively and to multitask because as a department manager, you not only have to manage your team, you've got to get the goods on the floor. You have to take the markdowns and pack up the RTVs and merchandise the floor on a daily basis. So it was challenging, yet it helped me to develop my communication skills as well as my skills managing people. Great. So you mentioned the transitioning into buying and, you know, Lancome was the major brand you worked on. You work on makeup. So Lancome, Flory Rodgers, Fashion Fair. I want to know what it's like to be responsible for making sure that Fashion Fair is in the stores at the time. That was fun back in the day. I mean, when I was a young buyer, the industry was so different. It was glamorous and there were parties and it was just a fun place to be. And working with Fashion Fair was interesting because I'm a woman of color. Fashion Fair was a line for people of color. How often does that happen? And so the relationship with Fashion Fair was very close. I worked with Lance Clark and I would go out to Chicago and they would take us to dinners, you know. So it was a really good relationship. And I really worked as their advocate because they were a small black owned company that Macy's, you know, Macy's 
is Macy's. And we had to fight for every single thing that they got. And I almost felt like I worked for them. I felt a very personal connection and responsibility to help them to make their brand successful at Macy's. And, you know, oftentimes, I mean, I bought Lancome as well. So it was a balancing act because, you know, Lancome was Lancome and they wanted to think that my full attention was on Lancome. It was a balancing act. But through that, I learned really strong negotiation skills and how to balance relationships so that everyone feels like they're being treated fairly and that they have my full attention. That's interesting. So in terms of when you're buying clothing, you're looking at seasonal stuff. What are the indicators? What are you looking for when you're buying beauty? Efficacy of product. If it is just a Me Too product or really innovation, you know, if it's a new ingredient, a new way of prepping your skin, taking care of your skin. I guess I would say the main thing that I looked for was innovation, a product that was different. And how often were you during the year kind of making buys? Well, there were seasonal buys. So that would happen spring and fall. But within that, you were buying weekly because you had to replenish what was being sold, right? So there was daily replenishment and then there was seasonal buying. So fall color story, spring color story, new product launches. There were always several product launches in the fall and several in the spring, depending on what the product was. Spring launches tended to be more geared toward skincare. Fall launches were more geared toward fragrance. And then there was a pepper of color, you know, makeup in both seasons. I mean, for Lancome, skincare was the lion's share of their business. So there was always a major skincare launch in January and then a major one in August slash September, like going into the fall season. Tell me about switching from department store like Macy's, huge, to Walgreens. What was going from a department store to drugstore environment like? That was a huge culture shock for me. I was recruited from a, by a headhunter to go there, and I was the only person of color in the entire organization, an executive role, and it was brand new to me. I mean, I went from buying prestige cosmetics to buying bath beads and, you know, just $5 items. Now, they recruited me because they wanted to reposition some of their stores to be more upscale and prestige, so that's why they hired me. So they wanted me to come in and get the long combs of the world to sell them. And that was an uphill battle. I mean, after I was there for six months, I kind of knew this was not going to work. It was a great idea that they had, but it just wasn't going to work. And it was interesting because probably month three in, I had a conversation and said, you know, it's going to be really tough for you to get major brands. Here's what we can do. And then we started working with diverters. <laughs> And that was very interesting. And I learned through that, you know, these large companies that don't want to sell at the time, business has changed so much over the years, but that did not want to sell the drugstores and off-price retailers had a whole nother arm of their organization that did just that. Okay. So diversion was coming from inside. That's very interesting. When you are in a position and you know it's not right, how did you approach your former boss 
that recruited you to Filings? Were you just honest and said like, or was it like a call for help or? Bob Chavez. I don't know if you know Bob. I know the name. Yeah. He's the president of Hermes USA. He was my mentor. I worked for him when he was at Macy's. He was my DMM or my GMM. And I, through the years, have kept in touch with him. And so I called him and said, I'm not happy here. We've got to get me out of here. And I was honest. I said, you know, I made a mistake. And at that point, he had already left Macy's. But, you know, we kept in touch. So he said, not to worry. We're going to figure this out. We all make these mistakes, but it's nothing that can't be corrected. And he then called Barbara. And Barbara reached out to me and said, I hear you're not happy. And I said, I'm not. Going from New York City to Pittsburgh, from a department store to a drugstore, it's just too much change at one time. And she said, listen, I'm at Filene's and you know I have something here for you. Come. So that's what I did. I went, I interviewed, and I think it was a done deal within a week. And I was moving, packing my things to go. So it's so important to maintain relationships in this business It's so important, yet it can be challenging sometimes, you know, because you start doing your thing and you kind of lose touch with people. But through my career, there are certain people that I've always, you know, kept in touch with and they've supported me. And Barbara Zimmore was one of those people. Bob Chavez is one of those people. So my learning from that is keep people close. And maintain true relationships so that if you need them, it's not that you're calling out of the blue. I need you. Right. (laughs) I need you right now. I need you right now. Get me out of here. It's a matter of urgency. (laughs) Yeah. It's important to keep in touch. I mean, Barbara and I still get together. We haven't since COVID, but um, we still get together for like a holiday cocktail or lunch. So yeah, it's important. Yeah. I'm in touch with people I've known throughout my career, like from day one. And I think that it really is important to maintain those relationships. Tell me about the difference between buying makeup and buying fragrance. Because when you went back to Macy's, you were a fragrance buyer, correct? Yes. So what was the thing that you had to learn? It's funny because I really loved buying fragrances. And I think it's because fragrances is more about the marketing. And you have more opportunity to market the brands, I don't want to say with more autonomy because you're always going to partner with your brand partner, but you have more say in how the fragrance is marketed versus in cosmetics. When you're working with the big, large companies, they have a point of view. They want to market how they want to market and you kind of just go along with their strategy. That was the biggest change for me And in addition to that, when I was a buyer, we were responsible for staffing. And the Lancome counter had anywhere from four associates, a counter manager, full-timer, and two part-timers, to a team of 12, 15 people. In Herald Square, it was like 50. So we were also, as buyers, responsible for those teams and working with the account executives on staffing. And there was so much drama involved with the staffing piece. That could be a whole nother show. (laughs) Yeah, that is a whole nother show. That's several shows. And that same dynamic 
didn't exist in fragrances. So you really could be a merchant and a buyer versus a staffing, you know, a psychologist, for lack of a better word. So that to me was like, I could exhale a little bit and really focus on the business and not so much on the people, you know, the associates in the store. What are some of the fragrances that launched during the time that you worked as a fragrance? Give me some of the things that are like touch points in kind of fragrance history. This was when I was a Lancome buyer, but I launched Trezor. Wow. Major. Yeah. And it was the biggest launch that Lancome had ever had in the history of their brand worldwide. So I remember we were popping champagne. It was fun. Trezor was a milestone. CK1, J'adore was a big one. I remember when I was just like, I don't even know if I was a buyer yet. When Cher's Fragrance launched, I mean, I'm really dating myself now because that's a long, long time ago. Were you there for Poison? Yes. I mean, because that was really like such a strange, not strange, kind of innovative in terms of the way that they looked at that fragrance. I don't know if I was there for Poison, but I'll tell you what I was there for, opium. Ah, yeah, that was even... Those are really touch points in fragrance history in terms of the way that you look at them. And when you think about J'adore, which is still really, really popular today, but CK1 was, you know, the whole unisex and all of that. That was really, really. That was groundbreaking. Um, that was a yeah, indicative of the time. Mm-hmm, had been done. Yes. Until it was more specialty than department a little bit. And what I think about at Lord & Taylor is when you're on the beauty floor at Lord & Taylor, you could smell all the fragrance. Mm-hmm. More so than you did in Macy's, but Lord and Taylor, you had smelled it all. Yeah. Well, I think it was a physical plant. It was that big ballroom type of a layout where Macy's was more like alcoves. And so I think the fragrance permeated a little bit more through the, used to call it the Great Hall. Um, I really enjoyed my tenure at Lord and Taylor. It was a small company. They were very agile. I went there when Jane Elfers was the president and they were repositioning to be more of a specialty store. So that's when they had a hundred plus stores and they closed all the stores in Florida, you know, all across the country. And so they brought me on board to really help them go through the repositioning. At Lord & Taylor, I felt like I was a decider. I felt like my voice mattered and I had a certain amount of autonomy in my role, but I was brought in to the fold with all executive decisions that were made as it related to beauty. So Barbara and I kind of worked hand in hand. It was refreshing to be part of that decision-making process. Compare that to Macy's, which is a larger organization. How did decisions get made and how were you informed of them? Macy's you know, it's a big machine (laughs) and they have established processes and many layers. So it was oftentimes more difficult to have your voice heard. And because there were so many layers, people tended to just kind of go through the motions and not really challenge themselves or the status quo, if you will. Right. So the very definition of stay in your lane. Yes, stay in your lane. And people used to say that. 
People used to actually say that, stay in your lane. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Where well, I didn't tell it was kind of like, yeah, you know, the lanes are open. Like, if you're comparing it, they're like, okay, so let's collaborate. Mm-hmm. Lord & Taylor was much more of an entrepreneurial environment and collaborative environment. And I really thrived in that environment. And maybe it gave you a taste of what it's like to be an entrepreneur. I think so. (laughs) Start Right Here is brought to you by Beauty Biz Camp, where we equip and inspire the next generation of industry leaders. Head over to our website, beautybizcamp.com, for more information and sign up for our mailing list so you can stay in the know about our upcoming programming. Let's talk about going back to a place you used to work. What do we need to know about how to negotiate with people who already know you Mm -hmm. and make sure you get what you need and what you're worth? Not just in salary, but just respect and for people to recognize your growth because I'm not the person that left. I have had these other experiences. So how does one go about that? Well, it's interesting because many of the people that I worked with at Macy's when I went back the third time were gone because Macy's, they reorganized often. And so, you know, many of the people, as I said, that I worked with the previous time weren't there, but there were several that were that I knew. And my point of view is when you're going to decide to make a change, and you're deciding to go back to a company that you worked for previously. First, you have to ask yourself why you're going back and why you left in the first place. There's a certain amount of self-reflection that needs to happen because there was a reason you left. And in many cases, those reasons that made you decide to make a change are still there because there's a DNA of a company. And I don't believe that companies change that drastically in terms of their core values, right? I think you have to be aware of any changes that have happened in management and any changes in the corporate culture, because the corporate culture changed when I was there the previous time. I also think it's very important, and this goes back to maintaining relationships, to reach out to people that you worked with that are still there. Yes, I would agree with that 100%. You know, to understand what it's like. And assuming you've maintained a relationship with those people, they will tell you honestly, this is a deal, Marty. A, B, and C has changed. X, Y, and Z is still the same, you know? So it's important to reach out to those people and also to people who have left the company, who left after you, to find out their perspective. I think when you really get down to it, it's about doing your homework about the company. And that's the case with anything that we do. We've got to really research it and do our homework and be informed. Would you say that some of the same things apply when you get a job opportunity elsewhere and you get a counter offer? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because my experience has been that every time I resigned to go elsewhere, the company that I was with always counter offered. And they were always like, we don't want you to go, stay, we'll give you this, we'll give you that. You know, for me personally, once I've made the decision, I've made the decision. And I have found that colleagues of mine who have resigned and have been counteroffered and have decided to stay end up leaving anyway. 
I always say people don't leave the organization, they leave the people that they're working with, right? Yes. And so you have to take that into consideration when you're making a move or when they're counter offering you. I think these are really, really valid points and it doesn't matter what industry you work on. This is applicable to anybody in any job situation. Take this advice and run with it. Let's talk about moving out of buying into this marketing role. You're still in the beauty space. What did you love about that new role? I really enjoyed, I guess because I'm an artist and creative, creative, I say in quotes, because what is that, you know? I found that I enjoyed working with the creative teams, especially at Lord & Taylor, because they were very open and understood that I had a certain aesthetic and were open to hearing my ideas. And then we were able to have really healthy exchanges to come up with the best marketing solution or plan or strategy. So that's what I really loved about marketing was working with the creative teams to come up with strategies that would drive the business. And also staying on brand for the vendors or the brands that we were supporting, because there was always that play, that push and pull. The brand, their identity, and Lord and Taylor, we had our identity. And how do you merge the two so that everyone's feeling good about the strategy? But that was fun. That was part of the fun. How do you think that COVID has changed the retail landscape and what's it going to look like in the future? I think the pandemic has, for lack of a better way of saying this, it's weeded out the strong players from the weak players. My belief is retailers that have stayed true to their core values and very close to their customers, as well as recognizing early on that the world was changing and that people of all backgrounds should have a voice and being courageous enough to act on that. And really what I'm getting to is that the companies that had diversity at senior levels of management, I'm not talking on the selling floor, I'm not talking assistant buyers and buyers, I am talking about DMMs and SVPs and EVPs and on up. And I am specifically speaking about in the ranks of the merchant world, because the support world is a support world. But in retailing, merchants run the show. Merchants meaning buyers, DMMs, they run the business. And so the retailers who have had the courage to really make sure that they had a diverse point of view at those levels are the retailers that I think will make it through the pandemic and will succeed and will flourish. So it's not just that it was the pandemic and then the death of George Floyd resulted in lots of companies starting to pay attention to it. You're talking about people who had the foresight already. Yes. To have people in place, not to start looking for them now. Yes. Because now it's like after the fact, like, what's the point? People are on to you, right? We know. So yeah, it's the retailers who had that foresight. Yeah, I think that that makes a whole lot of sense. And, you know, often we don't think about, but if you notice when you go into a store, you can tell if people are not thinking about a lot of different kinds of customers. Even if you go from store to store in a mall and the anchor stores have almost the same assortment, 
let's say you go and you see Ellie Tahari here and Ellie Tahari there, and they have the same things when, if you know what they showed, there was more to the collection. I think that there's been a fear just to play it safe for a long time. And your point about having diverse voices in the room and diverse voices in charge of the spend. Making the decisions. That's what it's all about. Because a lot of errors, merchandising errors, can be avoided if there's a diverse point of view. But if everyone looks the same and lives in the same place, then the decisions that they make are all going to be the same. But the world we live in is not that way. And it is important for them to have people of color sitting at the table to say, you know what? You need to have brands that have all shades of brown in foundations, right? And you need to have a diverse workforce behind the counter so that people feel comfortable when they go and they want help. And you need to make sure that if the brand has these darker shades that you are in stock. I have to tell you as a consumer, and that's what led me on this journey, as a consumer and being in the room when decisions are being made, a lot of bad decisions are being made as it relates to people of color. Actually, they're not making decisions. We're just like an afterthought pretty much. And many times I have gone into my own store, a Lord and Taylor, a Macy's, not so much Lord and Taylor, but a Macy's, a Lord and Taylor too. Macy's looking for a foundation, specific foundation, and they're out of stock and repeatedly out of stock. So much so that I went to a VP of sales of one of these companies and I said, you have a problem because you are always out of stock in my color. Oh no, we're not. Oh no, we're not. I mean, just it's like, listen, you are out of stock. And then you get service where you can tell that the associate really doesn't want to touch your skin, really doesn't want to give you a makeover. And it happened to me too often. And many times people didn't know who I was. Like they didn't know I was an executive with the company until I had to correct them and let them know. And then it was like, oh, you know, we're so sorry. Let us help you the proper way. And, you know, but by then it's too late. So you're working in the company and having this experience, imagine how many consumers are having it and not saying anything. Yep. We know that this is the case. Tell us what you've done as a result in your new entrepreneurial venture, which is really exciting. So I decided when I left Macy's that I was going to open a retail store. And I really loved being working in a store, interacting with customers, merchandising the floor. I enjoyed doing that. So I decided that I was going to do that on my own. And I had a store location. I had a lease that was signed. Um, I did a lot of work prior to that point, researching brands and understanding exactly what my niche was, who my customer was, where I wanted to be. I did all kinds of demographic studies, you know, just making sure that I knew there was merit to what I was doing, but I needed to see the data behind it. And so I researched for, oh my gosh, probably a year and then took the leap, left Macy's. And at the time, I had always used large brand product, but I always had very sensitive skin. So I oftentimes would get irritation, not real big breakouts, but just irritation and never really knew why. Once it would get irritated, I'd try something else, you know, but through my journey, 
I realized that in many products that we're being sold, there are toxic ingredients. I mean, it's shocking. And that's what irritates our skin. I then started on a clean beauty journey, trying to understand what products carried toxic ingredients and what toxins were out there that were put in products. And not only that, but what good ingredients were there that we should look for in our products. So that took on a whole nother study for me. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going down the clean beauty route. And I want to, because what we put on our skin is absorbed into our bodies. And I don't think people really think about that. So I decided that I wanted to educate people of color because we have enough stress in our lives, outside stress. We don't need to be stressed about what we're putting on our skin and we need to feel good about it. And we need to know that when we use a product, it's not going to have adverse effects. Really, my mission was to come up with an environment that was welcoming with product that was safe for us and really educate and give my customers knowledge about product ingredients. So you were going to have this store. Yep. And a new company. Mm-hmm. Then COVID-19 happened. Yes. I had a store. It was a beautiful corner unit in Bed-Stuy. I had contractors getting ready to do the build out. I actually signed the lease on March the 12th. And I think seven days later, the city was shut down. And I remember sitting in the attorney's office exchanging the papers. And we were kind of joking about what was going on. You know, we didn't shake hands. It was kind of like cavalier. You know, we weren't really that concerned. And we were shut down a week later. You know, all the contractors were calling me, can we work? And we couldn't. No one could do anything. And then about a week later, I got sick. And at that point, I was like, I called my accountant and I called my attorney and thank the good Lord, I had really good support there. They advised that I should get out of the lease. They said, you know what? You're a brand new business. You don't have a customer base yet. This is going to just be a money pit for you. You're not going to be able to sustain it. And furthermore, we don't know when this is going to end, this lockdown. So if we knew in six months, everything would be fine, then we would advise you differently. But because there's so much uncertainty with this, this is our advice. And at first I wasn't going to take it. I was like, I'm going to do it. I can do it. And then as each day went on, I was getting sicker and sicker. And I thought, you know what, have to cut the cord. Fortunately, I had a really good attorney and I had a good guy clause in my lease. So I was able to get out of the lease very easily and no hard feelings. And everybody just said, you know what, maybe a different day, different year. And so that was that. I was sick from the end of March through like June. I mean, I was out. It was horrible. And finally, in the middle of June, I was like, okay, I have to do something now. You know, I'm not independently wealthy. Like, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And so I was always going to have an online presence with the store, but that was not my focus. And so as I thought it through, everything happens for a reason. And when one door closes, another will open. I said, you know what? I'm going to start online. And quite frankly, 
that was probably a blessing in disguise because that gave me the opportunity to really lock in my brand identity, develop a customer base so that when I do open the store and I am going to finally at some point open a store because that's really what I want to do. I mean, my plan was to have a retail store that functioned as a place for the community to feel comfortable to go to, to shop, to have facials. I had an esthetician who was working with me. Um, We had a lash and brow bar. I mean, I had the whole thing. It was all figured out. And I will eventually do that. Was the store going to have the same name as your business now? It was always Melon and Grace. And what made you come up with that name? I first had another name and I realized that name was taken. And I had to do a lot of research in terms of searching what wasn't taken. And I knew that I wanted the focus of my store to be people of color, people with melanin. That's how I sort of came to the melanin part. And I went through a lot of different alliterations. I had someone working with me. And then, you know, I believe in grace. I believe we all need grace. And so I just thought that that is how I've tried to live my life. And so it just sort of organically happened. I was like, you know what, this is melanin grace. And also because all of us with melanin, we need a lot of grace, right? So that's how I came up with the name. I love the name. Thank you. Because, you know, grace is also beauty. There's beauty in grace. How have you pivoted in terms of, had you identified brands and are you working with those brands now? Have you identified different brands? Like what has been different about the way that you're approaching and building now? Well, I started wanting a very curated selection of brands, and I reached out to several, probably 10 brands initially, and they all agreed to open the store. They knew that I was going to have an online presence, but that, as I said, wasn't my focus. So I had those 10, 12 brands that agreed to open, and then COVID happened and there was a pause. So when I was well and I was up and running, I reached out to everyone and said, listen, I'm still here, I'm still alive, and I'm still moving forward. Will you partner with me? And I have to say, all of my partners were great. They all said, you know what, Marty, we believe in what you're doing, and we're right there with you. Um, When you're ready, you let us know. That was a blessing. Six months had gone by, so when I reached out to everyone, I was a little nervous. I wasn't really sure how they would receive me, but they were great. Everybody was more than willing to work with me and were very giving of their time and their knowledge in giving me direction on their brand, as well as what other retail or stockists were doing that they were working with. Who are some of the brands that you've started working with? I started working with Aka Wellness. She is a lovely woman. She's based in Australia and she's Sri Lankan. All of the brands that I'm doing business with are people of color. My mission was to have a retail store that supported people of color, both from the brand side and the consumer side. Dahia Beauty, Mia out in California, Jackie Megiddo in California, and Folk Beauty, Niambi, who's here in Jersey City, and Angie Watts, who is down, I believe, North Carolina or South Carolina, Morena Beauty, which is out in Amsterdam in Europe. Elements of Allele, she was one of the first people to come on as well. And I'm still doing business with them. 
What I love is, is that you've chosen people all over the world. Like it's it's a global experience, which also makes it a bit different than some other people that are looking at reaching women of color or people of color. What, how do we find you? MelaninGraceBK.com is my website. And I'm on Instagram at MelaninGraceBK. Great. What is the thing that you think you've learned as an entrepreneur so far that you weren't expecting? So much. (laughs) Being in a corporate environment for so many years and being an executive level, my role was really strategy. And it was coming up with the strategy and working with my team to execute. So as an entrepreneur, I'm doing everything. Strategy, execution. I mean, the funniest thing happened. I was talking to my cousin who was trying to purchase something from my website and he was having difficulty because he wasn't in the right browser. So he says to me, where's your IT person? Can you get your IT person on the phone? (laughs) And I said, you're talking to the IT person. This is she. I'm the IT person. So what can I help you with today, sir? You know, I am doing everything from IT to Instagram posts to interviews, speaking to my brand partners, just everything. Loading product onto the site. It's been a rewarding experience, but very humbling as well, (laughs) because I realized there's a lot that I don't know about entrepreneurship. And so I'm learning every day. And I make mistakes and I try and correct them and apologize to whoever, you know, whatever. I haven't had so many customer errors, thank God. But, you know, and just say, listen, I'm new at this. I'm doing my best. And let's try and make this right. Now, let's move on to our fast track questions. What was the first beauty product you ever purchased or tried? An eyeshadow when I was probably 13. It was green eyeshadow. I don't even remember where. (laughs) But I just remember getting on the school bus and everyone laughing. But yeah, it was like a greenish blue eyeshadow. That was the first. What was the latest product you tried? I mean, you're probably trying so many. I know. This is not very sexy, but I just tried a new deodorant because I want to use healthy deodorant. So it's from Buff Experts. I'm looking at it. It's coconut and probiotics deodorant. What's the beauty advice you live by or leave alone? Wash your face morning and night. Always wash your face in the morning and before you go to bed at night. Moisturize and use sunscreen. And without is not to overstimulate your skin. Like don't over exfoliate because people tend to think, you know, if I have blemishes or if I've got oily skin or I've got dry skin, I need to exfoliate. And you can do a lot of damage by over exfoliation. Skincare or lipstick? (laughs) Well, if you asked me when I was in my 20s and 30s, I would have said lipstick because I like color. (laughs) But now that I'm a woman of a certain age, I would say skincare, definitely. Who is your black, brown, beauty icon when you were growing up? Who was the icon when you were growing up? And who deserves that status now? Growing up, I always remember my grandmother Mimi, she used to always say to me, she used to put on rouge and she used to say to me, you know, Marty, you have to help mother nature out just a little bit. And I remember sitting, she had this vanity that had like three-way mirror 
and all these lovely like crystal jars and brushes and creams. And I used to love to sit at that vanity and just look at all the shiny, sparkly things. And that was from a young age. I would say she would probably be my person, only because I always remember her saying that to me. You have to help Mother Nature out just a little bit. (laughs) And she always wore lipstick and rouge. And she would do her eyebrows. It's the other thing. And who'd you say deserves that status? Or does she still like maintaining her status now? I kind of have my own thing. I don't really necessarily look to celebrities or others for that. I don't know. That's probably a pretty lame answer, but... No, it's not. It's not. It's fair. If someone wanted to follow in your footsteps... I would tell them to follow their dream and be true to themselves and don't do anything that they really don't want to do. If I had really followed my dream, and I don't know, you never know. Hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, I'd be a painter probably. Maybe have my artwork in the Met. I don't know, at the Guggenheim or somewhere. But I would say, follow your dream and don't put it off. Don't say, oh, I really want to do this, but I'll do it in a couple of years. Have a sense of urgency if it's really in your heart to do it. I think that's critical and really, really important because I sound like my mom. Tomorrow is not promised. Do it now. My mother used to say, live for today. Live for today. And that didn't mean be reckless, but, you know, live your dream. Yeah. And don't let people talk you out of it. Don't let the naysayers, because there will always be people who are going to tell you why it can't be done. But don't let them. I mean, they're going to do it, but don't listen to it. Don't let it get in your head. Be true to yourself and follow whatever it is that you think you want to do. If you want to be a buyer, stay focused. Because even now in 2020, it's not easy for people of color to break in to buying. Why is that? It's systemic. And companies will say, well, we get them as assistant buyers, but they never stay. Well, they never stay because they see their counterparts who started on squad with them, promoted to buyers and DMMs, and they're still an associate buyer. And given all the reasons why they are not quite ready yet. And it's because you have people in the DMM position and the SVP position that don't look like them, that can't relate to them, and they're not their first pick. And that still happens to this day. Not surprising, but still disheartening. It it is. But that's why I say, don't be discouraged. Keep pushing. Find someone that can give you guidance. The other thing that I would add that you have really demonstrated in your career directory is create authentic relationships. When you create authentic relationships, you're able to take the pulse, kind of like have a sounding board and work with somebody to make some critical decisions about, is it time to move? Is it time to fight? Is it whatever it is that you want to do? Sometimes that person is not a mentor, but they're kind of like a sponsor. So I would just add, create relationships to following your dreams. Sometimes you need some help or a push. Yes, you're absolutely right. And you know what? In addition to following your dreams, create relationships and maintain those relationships. That's what's so important because we're all busy and we all lose sight and we all, I'm guilty of that too. You're moving, you know, at 50 miles an hour and you tend to think in the moment and what your needs are and where you want to go and what you have to accomplish. And you don't think about, gee, I haven't spoken to so-and-so in six months. Maybe I should try and reconnect. And especially with COVID, it's even more difficult because It used to be you could just go out and have a cup of coffee or have a cocktail with somebody. And now it's just like, 
you have to schedule a Zoom or a FaceTime or, you know, and it's just, it's kind of no fun. That's right too. But even if it's not fun, you got to do it, people. Yeah, you do. And it has to be premeditated. You have to really put it on your to-do list. Otherwise it'll fall off. What are your hopes for Melon and Grace for 2021? My hopes for Melon and Grace for 2021 is to be profitable, to have a very uh, developed customer base, and to open a store, to open a brick and mortar store. We'll stand and hold those truths for you. Thank you so much for being a guest today. It's been really, really enlightening, especially the retail stuff, because I thought that was what I was going to do, but I'm not built for that. <laughs> I'm not built for that. Yeah. It's not for the faint of heart. It's hard work. It's a lot of hours and it's building relationships, but staying agile. And to your point that you made earlier, it's knowing when to move. Exactly. And I have been blessed because every move that I've made, I've been promoted. It's been like a better position or a position with more exposure, more money. And I think I was successful with that because I always spoke my truth. And I think that's why the people that I worked with, we had a good relationship is because they always knew that I would speak my truth, that I wasn't going to pull punches. And I, you know, it did work against me sometimes too, you know, because people don't always want to hear the truth, right? Or what my version of the truth is anyway. But I think that served me well. But thanks again. I really appreciate you spending the time with me. Well, thank you so much, Corinne. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed it. It was fun. Great. That's our show for today. Remember that there's more than one way to the top. And the most important step is the first one. So start right here. 